What we see in, in this area is that most of the customers coming to EC Fiber are customers that are coming from Fairpoint. This is episode 251 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. EC Fiber is a consortium of 24 member towns in East Central Vermont that banded together in 2008 on a mission to bring high quality connectivity to their small rural towns. The project began with funds from many local investors. Since then, the network has expanded and a new structure will allow EC Fiber to continue to grow. In this interview, we learn about EC Fiber's past, present, and future plans. Christopher's guests, Carol Monroe and Irv Tomei, describe what it was like getting the community network going. Now here's Christopher with Carol Monroe and Irv Tomei talking about EC Fiber in Vermont. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and I'm enthusiastic today to be talking with Carol Monroe once more. Uh, Carol is now the CEO of ValleyNet. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. And we also have Irv Tomei on, who is the uh, the district chairman of the governing board for the East Central Vermont Fiber Network. Telecommunications district. Right. We're going to explain for a second how that used to be EC Fiber and now has a different name because it has a new, exciting approach. Uh, so welcome to the show, Irv. Thank you. Maybe that's actually just a really good place to start quickly. Um, Irv, can you just uh, remind me how EC Fiber is now structured? We, we were and still are a collection of 24 municipalities in East Central Vermont. Uh, but we formed originally under an obscure provision of Vermont law for what's called an interlocal contract. We worked that way for several years, but it became clear that outside of Vermont, people who might have chosen to invest had no idea what that meant. And so in the spring of 2015, we successfully asked the, the state legislature to to pass new law, creating a structure called a communications union district, which is essentially like a solid waste district or a water district or even a union school district with the important distinction that under pre-existing Vermont law, uh, although towns can own and operate telecom networks for the benefit of their residents, they can't fund them from local taxes. So the district is a union district of 24 municipalities that does not have local taxing authority. But it is, under the laws of Vermont, a municipal entity. And that gave us standing to go out to the municipal bond market and seek uh, revenue bonds um, in the name of a recognizable government entity. And that's why we are now the district. Wonderful. And the network itself, or the, the governing board, uh, doesn't actually have employees. That's all handled by, by Carol and ValleyNet, as I understand it. That's correct. The district itself uh, doesn't have employees. It contracts with ValleyNet to design and build and operate the network. The network is now owned by the district, but the district is in turn uh, owned by its member towns. Carol, can you tell us a little bit about ValleyNet? Uh, where did that come from? ValleyNet originally started as an ISP um, doing dial-up connections in the Upper Valley region and um, and was that entity when uh, these towns in the in the in Vermont um, were trying to determine what kind of a structure they could have um, and what it would look like. Um, and so ValleyNet itself was on its way out because dial-up was going away. Um, and the that structure of ValleyNet came into um, play to become the operating entity 
of EC Fiber or East Central Vermont Telecommunications District now. Um, so that's um, it's always sort of been this ISP, uh, and uh, some of its revenues at that time were also invested into this network. So ValleyNet is the operations company. It's a not-for-profit in the state of Vermont. We have uh, 12 employees at the present time. Uh, what we primarily do is exactly that. We build and operate the network for EC Fiber. So you don't have a larger uh, service territory that um, that EC Fiber is just a part of. You are entirely focused on the EC Fiber telecommunications area. We are at this time completely focused on that. There's enough to do. So how is the network doing? What kind of um, what kind of footprint are you looking at, and uh, how many customers? Well, right now we're looking at about 1,650 customers that are uh, active live customers, and we have about 375 miles of fiber up to serve those customers. We're looking at about a 35 to 40% take rate overall um, in those areas that were where we have service. And we have at least some service in, um, I'm losing count, 17, 18 of our 24-member towns, or is it 19 now, Carol? Um, it, it is 19. Mm. Um, so, And there are another 1,600 who have subscribed that are just waiting for service and waiting for us to get to them in their towns and along the routes that we're, that we're serving. And as you know, we, we offer only fiber to the premise. Um, it's all symmetrical service. We, we have a, uh, levels at 10, 25, 100, and 500 meg. And that is going to be moving up again. We keep increasing the service instead of increasing prices in any way um, or decreasing prices. We just keep increasing the amount of service. Um, and so we expect that we'll be at a gig within the next year. Well, it, sound, it sounds like pretty impressive growth um, by my calculations because um, we just happened to do a story about you all about a year ago. Um, it looks like it's more than 30% growth since then. That's about right. And we're yeah. looking to, to add about 800 customers this year. Um, and, uh, and that's on, on top of the building of 250 miles. So when you add miles, you add customers. Well, it looks like you must be, um, I, I don't know exactly how the geography works, but um, the, the thing that I saw was that you plan to cover 21 of 24 towns by uh, 2019 fully, which, uh, which you know, it suggests you're, gonna, you're not just plateauing, you're continuing to ramp up. We are. We are. So it's 250 miles this year for a build, and then we're planning the 350 miles for 2018 and a 450-mile build for 2019, which will bring us to about 1,450 miles complete by that deadline. That represents yep. all of the unserved areas in our territory. Unserved meaning they don't have a cable connection, they don't have service at an FCC definition of 25.3. Um, and so we still have work to do after that but we will have served all the unserved areas by that time. And the reason uh, we speak of 21 out of our 24, the other three have a um, very extensive coverage by a cable company. By and large, the folks in those remaining three towns are, are not already hurting for true broadband. That makes sense. I, I have to wonder if, um, you know, in the years that you've been working on this, um, do you have more towns that are clamoring to be the 25th or the 26th community connected? We get some, we get some inquiries. And um, what I often say when somebody asks if we have plans to expand geographically is we don't have any imperial ambitions. We'd be happy to encourage 
other groups of towns elsewhere in the state to form their own communication union districts. We, we're glad that we helped get that law in place, and we believe it can benefit others. We might add a few neighboring towns, but we, we really got to take care of the unserved population within our own towns before we think about getting bigger. That makes sense to me. Uh, I mean, it really resonates, although it does seem like just getting something started is an intimidation that um, that you need a certain kind of community willing to um, to really just do it, to go out there and to um, to do the hard work to bring something new in, whereas expanding seems less intimidating. That could be partly true. Certainly, we were extremely fortunate that at the uh, in two ways at the very outset that there were uh, three individuals who were able to invest a quarter million dollars each as seed money long term loan um and that helped us get the the network hub uh, network operating center built and the first 25 mile loop of cable uh, hung uh, and we were also fortunate that this happens to be a group of towns with a lot of uh, very energetic people that are willing to, to pitch in and work hard to make something happen. Some of the towns, certainly not all of our towns, but enough of the 24 member towns had sufficient numbers of, of people with some money that we were able to get to grow initially by small amounts of investment by local individuals who wanted it to come to them uh, and by the time we, we wrapped up that phase, we had about 475 different people who'd invested. And mm, at least 90% of, the, I think, of those um, 475 people had invested in small multiples of $2,500. So I guess one of the things I'm always curious about is with all that grassroots involvement, are, are people pretty excited? Uh, what kind of stories do you hear about uh, people that just get connected or, or respond? We get a lot of stories from people who are um, working from home, whose uh, family comes up to visit and needs to work from their house. Um, and that that's generating a, a need. And so we'll get a, a customer who will say, you know, can you get to my house and can you get to, you know, the, the house across the street that my son's going to buy for when he's up here? Um, and he can't come unless there's high-speed Internet here. Um, and I think there's a, a number of people who, who generally work from here and work, you know, for somebody outside of Vermont, um, but then a lot of homegrown businesses throughout. Uh, we, we know that because if we have a, any kind of an outage, small outage, um, we get calls from people who say, you know, I need to process these transactions today or my employees aren't going to be paid. And, and I look at their account and they're sitting on a residential connection. And I think that's hard from an economic development perspective to get a handle on, to find out how many people are actually doing that. But well, there's is, some uh, data that indicates Vermont has a very high percentage of people in self-employment. We, we know that there are many young people who've grown up in Vermont, and they've uh, gotten started in a, in a specialty, in a career, maybe in, through college or through military service, and they want to come home and live where they grew up. They have faced a draconian choice. Uh, there's one part of the state that's relatively urban for Vermont. That's the city of Burlington and its immediate surrounds. And there, there's plenty of high-speed connectivity available, but the cost of living is quite high. And then across rural Vermont, there has been very little real broadband. And so people that young people who would like to come home and build their career and their family end up not coming back to Vermont, but wishing they could. 
And we're trying to solve that problem and stop the, the loss of rural population in our area. Well, I guess one of the things that springs to mind, Carol, when you were describing those folks who have um, you know friends that come up or maybe have second homes, um, they probably have cable connections where they're from, and they, they come up and they might be surprised, I wonder, if how great the symmetrical connectivity is for them um, from EC Fiber and ValleyNet. We often hear that sometimes what they have better service here on our network than they do from where they come from in a very urban area. Uh, and it's more consistent. And so they enjoy being here. And of course, the more that people with second homes and people who can work from here are in Vermont, the more they spend in Vermont. It's good for economic development across the board. It's great to see that happening. Um, and, you know, so we don't rule out second homeowners. They're really a, a good part of our, our subscription base. Um, and they, you know, they may be here three months out of the year or six or or one, and and yet they, you know, enjoy being here in Vermont, and they like to have that kind of connectivity that that they can continue to work or or do what they need to do from afar. Now, Irv, I wanted to pick up with something that you were saying about the you you're now able to issue bonds because you are right. a, this uh, public district. Um, is that how you plan to finance uh, the rest of the infrastructure? That's what we've been doing. Last year. We sold uh, $9 million in revenue bonds. Uh, we used about half of that to refinance some of our uh, more expensive short-term debt and to do the design and pole preparation work for this year's construction of 250 miles. This year, we will be announcing a closing very soon on $14 million of additional revenue bonds and with that, we will do the 250 miles of actual construction. We will refinance our remaining expensive debt from past financing arrangements. And we will do the, the engineering work and pole preparation for next year's 350-mile build. And then next year, we won't have any more of the old expensive debt to refinance, but we will once again um, build the, the prepared miles and design that last tranche of mileage. That will get us to where we need to be um, by 2019. Um, and and then we'll see where we go from there. We all know that the areas with a, a cable footprint have a different business model. And so as we built out the rural areas, that still leaves about 300 miles of, of uh, we call it dense here in Vermont, but it's still very rural compared <laughs> to the rest of the country. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Higher density areas where you see about 100 premises a square mile versus our average towns are about 25 premises a square mile. Um, and so they, they have a higher density, um, but it costs more to build them, mostly because there's about a 15% higher uh, cost in doing that make-ready work on the poles um, because you're dealing with more carriers, the cable company and some other carriers that might be on the poles. Um, so there are higher costs to build. And the take rate ends up being about 17% versus the 35, 40, or 45 that we experience in other areas. And so that in itself creates a different kind of business model for building out those areas and thinking about how to do that effectively. Those towns want us to do that, particularly through their business districts, because they want those business districts to have competition that doesn't exist there today. Um, and so with some competitive pricing, they may see some, you know, some business pricing go down um, in those areas. 
And they also have a lot of small businesses in those areas. And those small businesses, um, even the, the business pricing of a Comcast or a Fairpoint is too expensive for those small businesses, but our business pricing is perfect for them. And so they're looking for us to, you know, get through their business districts uh, first and, um, and then look at some other areas. But that's one of the reasons they'd like us to be in those towns. Well, I can, I can certainly imagine that. We have a small amount of experience already with take rate in cabled areas because um, we have concentrated on outskirts of our more densely populated towns where there wasn't anything else. Um, but to get to the outskirts, we had to go through um, the inskirts, as it, as it were. So though, although those, those more densely populated areas are in the towns we've touched so far, chiefly residential, where there we see some people making the switch or cutting the cord, but not so much because they want to save money by switching to us, but because they have some ideological point of view uh, or active discontent with the cable company as a supplier. Right, Vermont being uh, just wonderful for independent businesses historically, um, not being a big fan of the chains. Uh, so one of the things that, that I think surprised me, uh, may have surprised you at the time, is that in some of these rural areas where you uh, were the first to provide broadband, um, you're now seeing uh, Fairpoint start to build uh, connections that may not be able to offer broadband as the FCC defines it, but, but a, some kind of DSL service. Um, what's happening there? Will your listeners be familiar with, with the Federal Communication Commission's CAF2 Connect America Fund Phase 2. I don't know how familiar they are with it specifically, but they've heard me complain about it many times, and they, they are well aware <laughs> they are well aware that it is not well administered and it is resulting in massive amounts of subsidies for subpar connections. So that part you can assume. It is indeed. Uh, you, you, we couldn't have put it better than you just did. The, the plan was FCC wanted to make every effort that the incumbent phone carriers would take on the burden before they asked independents to tackle it. So a phone company was now required either to take all of a service territory and take on the CAF2 mandate or none. And if the phone company, if the incumbent passed, then there would be a reverse auction. But because Fairpoint decided to take up the offer from the FCC, we never got a chance to bid on providing service in any part of Vermont. There are about 28,000 eligible locations in the FCC's list uh, to be serviced under CAF2, and the phone company uh, cheerfully agreed to take on all of them, ignoring the fact that the list that the FCC was working from was a year and a half old. So there were already a few hundred locations on that list that had EC fiber service. So the Fairpoint committed to a six-year process during which they will provide at least no, not 25.3, but at least 10.1 service. The FCC has officially defined broadband for most of the country's residents at 25.3. The definition in rural areas remains much lower. 10.1 actually often translates to 10 three quarters. Fairpoint's got this big job to do. We can't tell what they're doing in other parts of the state, but we do know that they are rolling out fiber to DSLAMs, fiber to neighborhood nodes, in places where we already have customers. And they're going to be offering these new potential DSL customers a service that doesn't match what the customer can get from 
a fiber to the home connection. And what the customer can get depends very heavily on exactly where the customer happens to be relative to the neighborhood node. Carol, did you, I don't know if you wanted to add anything. CAF2 funding um, is funding uh, connections in 14 of our 24 towns. In many cases, they are completely overbuilding where we already have existing fiber. And in the town of Barnard, for an example, there's 14 and a half miles of which we already have fiber and we've already connected this, those customers, but they're overbuilding that with DSL, about 120 premises. Um, and in our calculations, based on what they indicate, about $1,800 per connection is what they're getting paid, we can provide that service for that same amount of money um, without too much difficulty. And so it doesn't make any sense to us, but it also it's all stems from the fact that this is a small company. We're growing rapidly in 2013. We didn't have the connections that we have today, um, and they were using old data to create the lists in which Fairpoint is building from. So that's part of you know inconsistencies uh, of the FCC and some of this uh, not doing it effectively. Carol, one of the things that, that I just think when I see that is that if your roles were reversed, if you were getting some kind of federal subsidy to compete with Fairpoint, I have to think that given the power of these larger companies in D.C., that that someone in D.C. would notice and they would pull the funding back from you and say it was wasteful. But somehow that just doesn't seem to happen with um, when small companies are getting the short end of the stick. You're talking to a company that has gotten no federal funding. We're not in it to make a profit. We're able to do this to serve our residents, and we're able to do it at lower cost because we don't have to return dividends to stockholders. And uh, and Carol had noted that ValleyNet itself as the ISP is a, is a nonprofit. Right. So, you know, it's just one of those things that just I, I find so frustrating. I mean, here you've gone to this trouble, and now you have to deal with this massive subsidy going to Fairpoint, which is then taking it and putting it into DSL. And, you know, we've been wrestling with this in a few other states as well with the massive subsidies. And I was trying to figure out exactly how much a company like Fairpoint itself has to put in. And it's not clear. Uh, and in and talking to experts that follow it closely, it's it's really not clear. Um, although one of the things that, that I want to ask you, Carol, is I think some of that, because you mentioned it's $1,800 and it's split up over six years, I think some of that money is actually destined to be operating costs. Because as you know, running those DSL networks has a high operating cost. And so they are going to be expecting future handouts as well, whereas uh, you've built your network in a responsible manner using a technology that has lower operating costs. So you will not require, you know, you didn't get any past handouts, but you're not going to get any future ones either, and you don't need them. I thought that the FCC with CAF2 was telling phone businesses, large or small, we are shifting here from ongoing support to capital investment and after that, you have to be on your own. That's what that the intention was, I think. I think there's been some mixed messaging. And I think that when you look at the technology choices, honestly, a lot of this stuff is... Um it's it's rumor and innuendo, I feel like, because so much of the real negotiation happens outside the public record. The the rules for CAF2 indicate that there will be some uh, statistical sampling to ensure that the recipient of the of the money has indeed delivered the bandwidth that they were supposed to produce. But the rules aren't clear as to whether that testing happens year by year or after the six years of build-out is completed. 
And the rules also aren't clear how they do the statistical sampling. If you do the sampling by taking a list of the 2,800 locations, if you're just randomly drawing people out of that list, then because there are more people living in village centers than out on the dirt roads, you're going to overrepresent areas where it's easy for DSL to meet the specs, and you're going to undersample areas where it's not. Sure. It will be difficult to deliver a 10-1 service to the rural back roads of Vermont. Um, in our territory, uh, they probably won't have an opportunity to prove that because many of these customers won't be their customers. Many of these um, <laughs> premises won't be their customers, but will be our customers. Um, and so they'll be getting good service here in central Vermont. Um, and so it's the other areas of Vermont that I, I'm concerned about. What we see in, in this area is that most of the customers coming to EC Fiber are customers that are coming from Fairpoint. Um, there's a, a, about a, a 10% of our customers who move over come from a wireless ISP. You know, that was a stopgap measure to begin with. Um, and uh, then most of them are coming from Fairpoint. About another 10% come from the cable companies. Uh, what bothers me is, of course, that that money could be better spent. Um, there are certainly areas of Vermont and elsewhere, r very rural areas, that are trying to create projects and, and move forward and, um, and deliver some sort of broadband uh, that's real broadband. It just is, is money that could be better deployed. That's not happening, and I don't know what will happen in the future, it, particularly as it seems like the FCC is moving towards more of an alignment with big business. I would like to wrap up with is um, a sense of how the local anchor institutions, uh, you know, when we wrote a story about this uh, situation, um, I saw that, that you are providing um, a pretty affordable service to uh, schools and libraries and that sort of thing. Can you tell me about it? Sure. We're providing a great service um, to <laughs> yeah. schools and libraries and municipal institutions. Um, they they receive our highest level service, which is right now at 500 megabits per second, but we'll go up to a gig um, when that occurs um, for the lowest residential price. So that's $74 a month. And that's in contrast to what they're paying today. In many cases, in many cases they're paying um, 400 to $800 a month for 100 meg. It's really going to allow them to cut their costs uh, dramatically and to reallocate those costs to using this technology in ways in which they can share information across their networks and, and with other schools and school districts. And we'll have six towns that will be fully built out at the end of this year. Um, and, and that's great for the schools because then you can send the homework home. You know that they will have an affordable connection at home, um, and so they can count on their students having a network connection. Um, and those schools are, are thinking about how they can best utilize that now that will be happening. So um, it's a great opportunity for the schools in our area. Um, we don't think of them as a profit center, as most of the bigger companies do. Um, we, we really see this as a, as a community endeavor. Not only is that a great deal, but it's in comparison to um, much higher costs. Um, it looked like um, the the high school in Woodstock um, needed a, a gig and ended is end up paying. I mean, it's on the order of like I don't know thirty, forty times more than what the um, what the schools are paying in your area. Uh, but you're unfortunately not in Woodstock yet, so um, they had to go with a private provider and really get fleeced. It looks like. And when you think about it, the private providers have a whole government and education 
um, business sales arm, they think of a school district or a government uh, facility as an opportunity for a big sale. Well, and especially because they, they, a lot of the school districts can tap into the E-rate funding, and so the federal government will pay those outrageous uh, charges. And so there's less of an incentive for the local person to, to really um, seek alternatives, um, which is, I think, just not uh, with fault with them, but it's the perverse system, the perverse results of the system. I was just at an event, and I was talking with a municipal provider, and they were talking about the challenges of E-rate. And he said, you know, we got around E-rate. We just decided that we'd charge the schools so little, it wasn't worth it for them to go and try and get reimbursed. Um, I would guess that at $74 a month, your schools may not be doing that paperwork to have federal folks uh, paying, picking up the tab. <laughs> No, the only E-rate we have is a potential construction um, to get to a school that's in sort of off the beaten path um, that's been approved for this coming year. So, and, and that's under that new construction guidelines um, that E-rate opened up last year. Great. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for taking the time to, to give us a sense of what's going on. And and I really want to congratulate both of you because I know that your competitors have run you down. They've said for years that you were going to disappear. You weren't going to make it. I know that this is a hard business, um, whether you're in a in an easier area or in the middle of Vermont. Uh, so, um, I just really want to thank you for all your dedication and work in making this happen. Take thank care. you. That was Christopher with Carol Monroe and Irv Tomei discussing EC Fiber in Vermont. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcasts at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Christopher on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 251 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. 